Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much, praise team, um, for leading us in worship, and thank you for coming in uh, ready to worship, ready to sing, and really point your attention, your heart's focus, uh, your mind's attention to, to the Lord and what He asked for us this morning. Um, you know, it's, um, amazing things, you know, sports, uh, sports often, especially this time of year, a lot of things are going on that really kind of fire us up. Uh, I was looking on Facebook this week and read a post that Ron put out there. It was in all caps. He was practically screaming on Facebook about the Carolina Panthers. Let's just let it go with that, okay? Just there's a lot to be said, but we're just just read his, read the man's post. He's wise. He's he he, he spoke he spoke well of the matter. Um, for me, it's not so much football. Uh, for me, right now, it's uh, it's this thing called Ten U baseball. In my second season as head coach. Uh, last season, let's just say it didn't go so well. Uh, this season, we've got a uh, we got a great group of kids that we're coaching. Uh, we had a scrimmage yesterday, so in a scrimmage, you know, it's it's time to get serious. It's time to kind of build up some confidence, see where you still need to do some work, but, you know, kind of work on the last few things that you just really need to do because tomorrow night is our first game. Well, I was particularly trying to work on some base running stuff yesterday in the scrimmage, and I was coaching third base and was talking to the boys about, you know, kind of what our strategy is going to be on base, and uh, we actually just lost our, uh, our number one draft pick uh, he had a, another sports conflict. Uh, he's playing um, some high-level soccer, so he's kind of found out he's not going to be around. So we're making a few adjustments. We got good speed. So yesterday it was like, all right, fellas, we're going to move around the bases. Uh, we don't try to make it too complicated, right? We're keeping it pretty basic. The kids know if they see a hat tip um, anywhere in the signs, and we don't throw a lot of them, there's just two or three signs, but if they see a hat tip, that's take off. Now, in 10U baseball, you still – once the ball passes the plate, basically it hits the, the catcher's mitt or just goes anywhere around the catcher, boom, you can take off. So that's what my job was in the scrimmage. I, I was working on base running, and first couple kids got on, and, and you know, boom, they still second, and even a couple of them had them still third just to kind of get you know, in that flow. I mean, it's, it's going great. It's going fantastic. I really felt like, you know, as a head coach, I'd, I'd found my ultimate calling in life in two new baseball. I mean, it was, it was going great. This one young man, finally, he comes around, he gets on base, and <clears throat> you know, I kind of got that look for, from him like, I think I kind of understand you, coach, but I'm not, you know, not real sure. So I wanted to be real clear when I was, you know, sending the signals over there. So remember, it's, it's just a hat tip. So, you know, I looked at him, I said, I'm going to keep it very simple for you. He gets on base, he gets his little lead off, and so I look at him, and I just go, right? I mean, just clear hat tip. He looks at me. Kind of nods. Oh man, he's even looking at me. This is this is a plus because at at you know eight, nine, ten years old, you don't get a lot of attention on the baseball field. So he's got his lead off, and you know he's set. You know he's he's ready to make his break, and pitch goes, and he just steps back over to first base. I thought, you know, okay, maybe he just wasn't feeling that one. He didn't feel quick, you know. So again, you know, boom, this is you, right? So then it's like then he comes up, and now it's like he's just. I mean, he's fully like leaning, right? I mean, he's. You know, he's, I mean, I'm thinking, no, this kid's gone. He's going to use the speed. He's gone. Pitch goes across the plate. Boom, he's right back to first. Okay. So I look at him. So then I'm like, all right, let's make it just a little bit clear. So, you know, I had a couple of times in there because this is a scrimmage. So we're stopping it and coaching. So I, I make sure he understands. So then it's just basically, I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as much as you can go. 
And for the next like three or four pitches, I mean, he's just, I mean, he's parked there. Like the kid strikes out this at the plate. Like we're getting a lot of pitches. He's just not budging. <clears throat> I mean, I was trying to get creative. I mean, like I was holding my hat, like it was hat up, hat on, hat down, uh, you know, Michael Jackson. I mean, it was anything you could throw at this kid just to get him just to see the hat tip and just make a move. So finally, he, he kind of gives me, he's like, oh, like he nods. He's like, I'm like, oh, okay, now we got it, right? So it's, this is going to be good. So, I mean, at this point in time, I'm just like, I'm just, hey, man, still sign. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, and it, the kid's name is still. I mean, like, this was, this was meant to be. Second base should have been his. So, finally, like, he gets, and he's got this look like, I got it. And, you know, hat tip there. Pitcher steps onto the mound, puts his foot on the rubber, looks at the plate. He takes off. What are you doing? The other coach is like, Coach, he can't steal like that. He can't, they're like, that's too soon. He can't go. And I'm like, just give me a second. I'm working on something here. So I go there, make him go back, and he's looking at me like, well, you wanted me to run. I ran. What's the big deal? So we're working through it, just trying to get the steal signs right. Well, this morning, we're not giving the steal sign, but we are talking signs this morning. Um, specifically, the first miracle that's in the book of John. Uh, many times I look at my life when I, I read scripture and, and, and until I really understood what God was doing and, and, and really kind of had to look into it, not just a peek into it, but really look when he shows something. <clears throat> I look back at my life and I see times where I'm, I'm like this young man uh, on, on kind of like this base path of life. Like I'm, I'm kind of looking, I'm not really getting it. My focus is distracted. And, and many times I just, I, I don't make the progress that God wants me to make. And this morning, I, I really, my heart is that I, I really want us all to make the progress that God intends to make because when, when God inspired John to write this gospel, um, he, he, does, he writes specifically about miracles using this word signs. Um, signs, whether it's on a baseball field, whether it's on the road, wherever it is, signs are meant to be seen, to be understood, and then after the understanding, to then have effect. Uh, whether it's a stop sign, a yield sign, whether it's a steal, whatever it is, it's, it's meant to direct us in some way. It's meant to have an effect. But it's got to be seen. It's got to be understood. <clears throat> in this passage here in the book of John, we're going to look at the first one this morning. Now, um, on your way out, if you didn't grab one of these, um, this is a piece of paper that's at, at both lobbies. Um, we finished kind of all of our introduction material last week. And in the book, in the first chapter of John, Jesus is referred to in some specific ways, some specific identities. For the rest of the Gospel of John, you will constantly see it come back to the picture that began to develop in chapter 1. Um, so grab one of these pieces of paper if you don't mind. If you don't see them, we'll put some more out next week. Um, but but as, even this morning, you'll hear some of these be brought up and you'll start to see how God is inspiring John to develop this picture of really who Jesus is. So not, we don't just see him, but we understand him. And then in understanding him, we believe in him. And then in believing, we act and we live. Um, so that's where we're going to really kind of try to springboard into this morning. <clears throat> in chapter 2, this first miracle happens at a wedding. It happens in a town called Cana um, of Galilee. And in the first few words, we get a little bit of a hint into what this is going to ultimately lead us to. It says simply in the first three words, or first four words, on the third day. Now, when we began the book of John, I told you that John wasn't written in just a chronological order. It wasn't just written as a timeline of events. 
God inspired John to differ from the synoptic, the sing together first three gospels for us to see Jesus a specific way. So you can't read John going, okay, this must have happened exactly after this. It'll drive you crazy. You'll actually wrongly assume that there's contradictions when there's not. That wasn't John's purpose. This on the third day doesn't necessarily just mean that it's a time reference, but, but if, you, if you really think ahead and we're looking ahead to third day type events, what we know ultimately we're reading towards is the third day resurrection of Jesus following his crucifixion. Um, this miracle even in the first four words, is already priming our understanding and our eyesight to what is the ultimate accomplishment that Jesus made for us in this world, on the cross, through his death and his resurrection. So that's what we're going to peek into. Now, we're going to be talking about signs. So there's some specific things that we're going to look at today, and I want you to look out for. Um, If you want to take note of a few of them, we're going to specifically talk about Jesus' response to his mom. His mom is going to start a conversation here with him. We're going to look at this thing called, um, he's going to say it this way, my hour. We're going to look at what his hour is. There are stone jars that, that, that seem like they're just kind of what's holding some liquid, but, but the stone jar itself is something we need to see. There are servants that only get one little line, but, but it's, it's great insight into our lives. There's the head waiter and groom. They appear kind of together partnered, but, but they have some significance to us as well. And then ultimately, we're going to look at this whole idea of water into wine. Water into wine. What, 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 are, we, what are we supposed to see in this? <clears throat> so, chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told his servants. So they're they're at a wedding. Specifically, they're at this um, celebration part of the wedding in their culture that was to celebrate um, through an elongated period of time the marriage of two people. And in this celebration, a problem came up. They didn't start running low. They ran out of wine. That, that means that all consumable liquids were gone. The celebration was still going on, but they ran out of supply. Jesus' mom felt a little bit stressed. Maybe this was a family connection. We don't really know. Maybe these were friends. But feeling a little bit paranoid, a little bit stressed, a little bit like something needs to happen, she comes to her son, Jesus. Now, Jesus at this point was around 30 years old. 30 years old is when a a Jewish male would be a rabbi, they would be a teacher, they would be an instructor, they would be somebody that could gather disciples, legitimate job of a younger person between um, their, in their teens and their 20s to follow someone, to learn from them, to pattern their life after them. So in in 30 years of raising, Jesus' mom has seen some things. We don't know what all she's seen, but she has seen enough from him that she is convinced that he can do Something And in this miracle, we find out clearly he does. Now, his comment to his mom seems a little bit almost rude. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Now, before you jump ahead of Scripture, um, if you and your mom don't get along the best, Jesus is not um, establishing the freedom to go talk disrespectfully to your mom. I know that may disappoint some of you, but you can't call your, when your mom calls you today, you can't answer the phone and go, 
what in the world does your mess have to do with me, woman? I mean, like, that's not what, where Jesus is going. He is, in fact, making a serious statement, though, because he's, he's trying to show his followers, his disciples, because that's who's around them. These are people that are, that are living life with Jesus, but always aware of what Jesus is doing. He specifically calls her woman because he's trying to emphasize something, which is this, that within the gospel, within the kingdom of God, within the working of God, Jesus doesn't do something just because his mom came and asked him, because that would be favoritism. And the Bible speaks clearly. Jesus speaks clearly. Examples in Jesus' life. He, he really puts away and puts to bed this idea that favoritism can exist in the kingdom of God. It's not healthy. It, it teaches people that maybe God prefers someone else more than me. And maybe you've been victim of that in your life. I, I've been a victim of that in my life by this, by this situation. You look at somebody else's life and you, you think it's going easier than yours or better than yours or just looks better than yours. And you go, well, God surely must like them more than he likes me. And to that, Jesus says, absolutely no. Sometimes we look at other people's lives and say, well, you know, my, my life just seems more difficult than theirs. But there is this knowledge that God has of all of us of what we can walk through and, and, and how we'll access his strength. And, and sometimes it may be that someone may not be able to walk through the hard steps of life that God trusts and knows that you can through his power. And, and that's not favoritism. That's just simply God's knowledge being worked out to help people see him in unique ways. But for this moment, Jesus says, what does this have to do with you and I? How is it that our relationship should, should push me to do something? Um, in Luke 11, there's someone from a crowd, a lady from a crowd says this. She says, um, this is about Jesus' mom. He, she says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. In other words, your mom that, that had you, carried you for nine months, and then nursed you. Just the fact that you are this person. Like, she just must be a favorite of God's just that she got to go through that. And this is Jesus' response. He says this, um, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says, no, the people that really um, are dear to the heart of God are people that, that just listen to what he says and they, they do it. There's another point where Jesus, um, his mom and his brothers came to um, to, to talk to him. They had a, 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 an issue at hand that they needed to address with him. They, they came to a place that he was speaking, and there were those that came in and told Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And he looked around at those that were around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, Jesus says this, the family of God is just simply the family of God. So no matter where you are in your life or however you see your life, because someone stands on a stage or sings on a stage or seems to have um, an, an easier path through life, that is not a statement of God preferring them. God shows his preference to all people and that he loves us so much that he gave his son for all. The, the idea that you are lesser is a lie that Satan wants you to believe into. And he wants you to listen to it and he wants you to think, you know what, I'm not that important. When God is trying to scream over us, yes, 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 you are. <clears throat> coming out of this, we see what else Jesus says. He says that this is not my hour. Now, I, I used to, I remember, I remember reading this passage of Scripture and, and, and wondering to myself, so does Jesus perform a miracle almost against his will? Like, does he not really want to do it? Like, it's not time yet? Is that what he's saying? No, see, throughout the book of John, 
um, Jesus talks about his hour. His hour refers to the time that he went to the cross to die for all sin. And even though it wasn't time for him to die yet, when he talks about his hour, what he's doing is, is he's calling people's attention to the fact that that is ultimately what he's there to do. So listen up. I want to help you. I want you to help. I want, to, I want you to be able to understand that better. I want you to be able to see what I'm talking about. I want you to know that this is coming. He's really trying to pull us into the gospel at every turn. So when he says, this is not my hour, he simply, he's not saying, I don't want to do something. He's saying, listen, my time, like my big moment is not here, but I'm going to show you some major significance in this moment. So he starts this out. Now, in John, if you're just curious, John 7.30, uh, John 8.20, John 12.27, and then 12.23-24, all those passages just within the book of John talk about um, Jesus and, and the hour that he's ultimately there, um, there to fulfill out. Now, this one section, what does this really show us in this miracle? It shows us this, that Jesus, like one of those identities, is the Son of God primarily. He's there to do God's work. He's not there to cater to the preferential desires of his family. This is, this is part of who Jesus is. Now, continuing on, it says this, um, his, his mom told the servants, she said, do whatever he tells you, his mother told his servants. Verse 6, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Now, um, these stone water jars were placed in, a, in, in the temple, in places of worship and around other places of worship. Where these water jars were, um, they were made of stone, they were carved out of stone, and, and people would be able to go in and they'd be able to wash their hands, they'd be able to purify, clean themselves, so they could enter into God's presence, they could enter into worship, they could enter into certain ceremonies in a way that they were more acceptable to God. Now, they were stone because um, in the Old Testament, if you go back in Leviticus, stone was seen as something that wouldn't absorb impurities. So if I took my dirty hands and washed them in this water, the water could be replaced, but, but the, jar, the, the stone jar itself was still able to be used. Um, it's this whole consistent idea that God was showing us of clean versus unclean, holiness versus sin. He's trying to paint that picture into his word all through his word. So they didn't use clay jars. In, in fact, in Leviticus, it said um, if they used clay jars and they got dirty in purification... Um, God's word said to actually just take a hammer and just bust them up, like just destroy them and not use them again. You may say, okay, well, I don't really know why does that matter to me. It, it actually matters greatly to us because <clears throat> in this story, Jesus is represented by these stone water jars. He is someone that sin does not affect. He's someone that is there for the purification of us. That's what his life was lived out for. We, for the rest of the New Testament, get referred to as clay jars, clay pots. We are ones that sin does affect. We are, we are vessels that want to live for him, but we, we suck up this, the effect of our culture and sin and all these things, and it, and it affects the way we think and the way we talk. It has effect on us. The beauty is Jesus allows us to be seen that way because he wants us to understand no matter what your life has taken on, I still want to use you. I still want to work in your life. I still want to work through your life. Now, these water jars that are here, um, 20 to 30 gallons each, remember, they're, they're out of wine. This would now create, through this miracle, 120 to 180 gallons of wine 
for the wedding ceremony to be able to continue with. After they, um, after we, we see just the, the, um, the specifics of these water jars, in verse 7, Jesus says this, Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. We now have some other folks joining in into the storyline. Take it to the head waiter, and they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. <clears throat> now there's a lot, there's a lot in this section. The head waiter was not a member of the family, most likely. Uh, he, he was there working a job. Uh, he, he was there to keep the events of the ceremony rolling. He was there to keep schedule. This was someone who um, was just about the busyness of life. And if you notice, here's how busy he was. Um, in, in the circumstances that were going on, while Jesus was doing something, um, he, he tasted the evidence that something had happened, but, but he had no clue of, of how it happened. The servants, on the other hand, are beautiful representations of who we're called to be as Christians. The servants were there to perform tasks, but they were specifically called out, and, and they were called out through the voice of Jesus' mother. Watch him. Do whatever he says. They were still having to get things done. They were still about the routine of life, but they were people that were specifically watching what Jesus was doing. And that's an amazing, really significant difference for us. Because for many of us, we, we live lives and we can get sucked up into the busyness, just the details of life so much that we become totally unaware of the evidence of really even what God's doing. Like We're trying just to remember not just um, what time to pick up our kids, but we're, we're trying to remember where we dropped them off. We're, we're trying to keep um, in our calendar all the events that we have to do because of the different seasons in life that we are. We find ourselves so busy with our jobs that we forget really even who our spouse is that we come home to every night. We look at our lives and realize that there's so much time that has passed that we've almost been unaware of because we've been so busy through it. We realize as people, what is it like to be busy? But spiritual busyness, when we occupy this ability we have that we're given by God to be aware of what He's doing, when we take that ability to be aware of that and we just shove it into our other busyness, then the consequence is that we just simply don't know and we're not seeing, in fact, what it is that Jesus is doing. You know, I, sometimes I just walk into my house in the evening and I, and I look at the people that are in there. I look at my wife and I look at my sons. And it just, it, it just blows my mind because I'm, just, I'm aware that God has done something. When I look at them, I, I, you know, when I was, when I was, before I was married, when I was first married, I had no idea how messed up I was. And really, it wasn't until Wendy told me how messed up I was that I even started to know how messed up I was. And, and, in, and in just knowing how crazy this is, I look at what God was doing all along, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm amazed by it. But if, I, but if I ignore her, I miss seeing that. 
a few weeks ago, I know um, Angela's dad passed away, and, and when I was talking to Michael, he shared a story from, from just years back um, where um, her dad was, was kind of, in a, a sense, kind of helping take care of him when he was sick. And now, as it came back around, he had an opportunity to, to physically help take care of her dad at a later stage of life. And he talked about how God had just, had just in a rich way, brought their relationship around in this amazing circle. But you don't see that unless you look, unless you're doing life but, but looking for what Jesus is doing. The servant place in here, the servant place is really where we want to live. Now, the head waiter has authority. He's, he's achieving things. He has a title. But a servant can work and be aware. And it's such a pleasure to be able to do that in the kingdom of God. They realize what's going on. Then the head waiter tastes the evidence of what Jesus has done. He tastes the real significant evidence of what Jesus has done. He calls the groom over. Now, the groom is the one who is ultimately responsible for the supplies of the ceremony. The head waiter was only responsible to make sure everything was on the table at the right time. He was responsible to make sure all the pictures got taken. They didn't really have cameras, but, you know, mental pictures. So he was responsible for all that stuff. The groom was responsible to make sure that there was enough wine there for people to be able to consume all through the celebration, that they didn't run out. The groom in this scenario is actually the one who has failed not just his own bride, but all of their family and all of the ones that are there. And see, here's the amazing part. Who comes to the rescue? Who allows this whole celebration to even continue? Jesus does. Now, think through this with me, though. Remember, miracles in John are signs. Signs are what we need to see and understand and look at. Jesus, you go into Revelation. This is all so much wedding language because Jesus is described in the Bible as our ultimate groom. We are the church. We're the bride of Christ. In eternity, there is a celebration where we get to be joined together with him forever. Jesus right here steps in in the place of the groom that let everyone down to say, I will supply and I'll be the one that will prepare correctly. I'll be the one that makes sure everything that you need is here and on time, through time. See, when we look at the world, there are many things that want to claim promises over us that will in fact let us down. You ever had somebody sit you down at your office and say, you know what, you're a vital part of this organization. And then all of a sudden you found out that, that your tenure there was not as secure as what you thought it would be. You ever sit across from somebody who has said, you are the best friend that I've ever had, only to sit there and realize that the, the issue that is between you is something that you don't even know if you can even work out to even speak to them again after you have lunch with them that day? Do you remember when people make promises to you and they just don't seem to keep them? And, and that does seem to be a little bit of a pattern in this world because this world... Is, is fractured and broken, but Jesus comes in and says, but I'll be the groom for you that you need. I will, I will not just romance you. I won't just call you. I will hold you, and I will keep you, and I will care for you. I will be everything that you simply need and could ever want. That's Jesus as the groom. He stands in in that place. Now, 
The fact that this is wine that Jesus is working through, there's, there's great significance in the fact that this is wine. Now, in the United States, um, a lot of times we, we read this, and, and as Christians, we're, we're, we're a little bit naive, and we're, we're, we're a little, we undersell Scripture a little bit. Sometimes, as Christians, we look at that and go, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I'm getting ready to have a wedding. Um, Jesus was at a heck of a party. Um, does this sign off on just some craziness at my wedding party? No, that's not what the purpose of this is. The, in, in America, one of the most Google things about this passage is people just want to know, Christians want to know, um, is this alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Because as Christians, they're trying to weigh in the balance. Should I drink or should I not drink? Missing the point. This is Jesus. He's up to something much bigger than all those really simple questions that we want to kind of muddle through in life. See, in, in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah 53, it talks about three different um, beverages. Um, it mentions water, milk, and wine. And, and this is kind of the Old Testament picture that we're painted from, from Genesis up to the Gospels. Water, and it's similar to the Gospels, water is, is there and it represents life-giving. Um, it's, it's the cleansing. It, it, it's the hydration. It's what we have to have to be able to live. And, and the Word of God, the truth of God, represents water. It's, it's what we have to have. When it's referred to as milk, it's the nourishment that we need. Uh, there are vitamins, there are minerals in milk that will actually nourish our body. If we drink milk, we will get things out of it that will, in fact, make us stronger. The Word of God, the truth of God does that. Wine in the Old Testament represents the joy of God. Now, in the Bible, clearly, there's some issues that God addresses when it comes to um, excess. And, and, and God was willing to take the risk to be able to say clearly what is wrong and right. And, and, but God was willing to take the risk because that's the riskiest part of our Christian life is, is figuring out joy. We'll go to God and say, hey, I need, I need the water. I need, I need the relationship with you to know that I have life. Then we'll go to God's truth and say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not as strong as I need to be. I need to learn some things. I need, to, I need to be able to know how you think. and I need to be able to know what to do in this situation. Well, so we'll go to God for that milk, that nourishment. But when it comes to joy in our life, happiness, then it's like, oh, God, I might be able to do this one on my own. That's the risky one. Do we trust him for our joy as well? So that's the Old Testament. Now stepping into the New Testament, wine now re represents something new, this new idea that out of sin came a washing through Jesus' blood. That's what he institutes in communion. That the wine is representative of his blood. The sacrifice to make us right with God. So now there's this new purpose that Jesus gives to us here. And it's happening right in front of them. They get to taste it. They get to experience it. Which is what the gospel has always been meant for. It's not been meant for us just to talk about. It's been meant for us to experience. And live in. And celebrate with. And have joy in. But the head waiter points out something that is puzzling, very puzzling. He says this. He says, hang, hang on a second. I, I, don't, I don't get it. He said, here's the normal practice. Wedding celebration starts. You put out the real good stuff, the stuff with labels that everybody recognizes. And people start to drink it. And it's a little bit more of a sophisticated drink at that point. Everybody's enjoying it. But then as sophistication comes to... Um, comes to the point of relaxation, then everybody just starts consuming to the point that many are drunk. And he says, listen, here's the normal practice. You put the good stuff out first, but once everybody gets drunk, 
they don't even realize what they're drinking. Throw out the, you know, throw out the cheapest stuff that's in the cabinets. He says, I don't understand. He said, you've waited till everybody is in a lost state of mind to put out the very best. He said, I don't get it. Which really gets us to the point where we stare directly into the cross. Think about it. The people that were even there putting Jesus to death, putting him to death, taking a hammer and a nine-inch spike and driving it through his hand were the very people that needed that hand to be on that cross. They didn't know they were sin drunk. They were just, they were just so blinded in their life they didn't even really know what they needed. And all of a sudden, just like we talked about a few minutes ago, their eyes are open, they're seeing, they're looking, they're tasting something that they've realized all along that they needed. This is the gospel. This is, this is Jesus saying, at this moment, most of the people at this party, I mean, they look like a party scene that maybe you've been in. They're laid across a piece of furniture. They're laughing uncontrollably. They're doing things that they never would have done in their right mind during the hours of 9 and 5. They're going crazy. And at this moment, no. Will they appreciate it? Probably not. Not at all, in fact. And when we see Jesus at the moment of ultimate sacrifice, He willingly did it in the face of people that had no idea what they were tasting. When I first heard about Jesus... I had no idea who I was. I didn't know how bad I needed him. I didn't know the circumstances of what my life was going to lead into. I had no idea. See, that's the substantial part of the truth of God. That's, 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 how, that's how full Jesus is of truth. That, that, that's how grace just, as it says in chapter 1, just comes over and over and over us. It, even in our greatest moments of ignorance, God is still God and he's still acting towards us in a way that we don't even understand. It's not a gospel of ignorance. It's actually a gospel to the ignorant. And the only problem is, I'm the one that's ignorant. But in God's grace, I get to see and sense His love. It says this, Jesus did this, the first of His signs in Canaan of Galilee. He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. So at every turn, through what seems like a, a fairly simple miracle. I hope you've seen at every turn that th there's all these signs and all these signs are pointing to the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The, the glory of God is, is, is evidence and in, in significant actions of who He is. That's how the glory of God shows up in John. The glory of God shows up in John in these, in these stone jars. that They were chosen for a specific purpose and that's who Jesus is. And He chooses us for, spe for specific purposes in our lives. He, he highlighted the servants to show us the glory of God that, that we could both live our life but be watchful of what he's doing and be able to see and recognize what it is. He, he talked about, um, just in a few small words, his hour, that the glory of God was coming, but he was teaching them ahead of time. He's, he, was, he's, he was wanting there to be witness and evidence ahead of what he did so that we would know and be able to be confident that it was in fact true. I mean, think about this. Three years before it happened, he's laying the groundwork just so human beings could go, you told us this was going to happen, so, you, so I can believe this. 
God is doing things in your life now and in my life now, and he's, and he's been doing them for years in our lives just to lay the groundwork for what is coming next so that we could believe it and know that it's real and that it's true. But we don't even realize all what it is yet. All these things are laying groundwork, that he is the Son of God, he is the Chosen One, that he is the Messiah, that he's there to, to, to meet the need of our sin. And the glory is seen through the gospel, water into wine. Jesus started with water, and from water it first had to turn into grape juice to be able to become wine, go through the fermentation process to become alcoholic. Now, from water into wine, there has to be a physical change. You can leave water in a glass sitting out forever, and you can pray over it, but it's likely always going to just remain water. Jesus had to get involved for there to be a change. That's what it means to come into a relationship with God. Initially, we're outsiders. We don't have a relationship with it. There has to be a change. Jesus has to do something. But you know the thing about wine is, a huge part of the content is still water. And for us, even when we come into a relationship with Jesus, much of our old sin nature, our tendencies, our habits, our desires still seem to be a part of who we are. They still seem to cause us problems. But then there's this fermentation process. There's, there's this progression over time where there's further and further change. That's discipleship. That's sanctification. That's us growing in Christ. And, and when people tasted it, when the head waiter tasted it, he was amazed at the difference. And for you and for me, when we live for Jesus, when he, when he changes us over time, after there's been a real change from us going from lost to saved, as he changes us over time, we become this thing that has a taste to it where people, they, they, they realize the evidence of what it was, but, but they're in awe of what it is now. Not because we need the attention or we should get the attention, but to the glory of God. There's evidence. There's evidence of the sign that was shown. And for you in your life, as it says for the disciples here, that, that the sign was shown, and then they believed. And in believing, they stepped on out of this miracle, expecting the next. I don't know what it is exactly that God has been showing you, but I can tell you this, from this story, one of the significant lessons that I take from it when Jesus turns water into wine and it goes through this process over time, it reminds me that absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing is out of God's reach. The, the things, and in particularly the people, that we may say never change. If it's about the glory of God, oh, yes, they can. Yes, they can. Miraculously even. And you know why I believe that? Because I'm part of the leading evidence. And something tells me you probably are too. That real change is possible. So seeing this miracle, I see the sign. That's my belief. And now that belief is now there to aid me at the next step. The next step may just be anticipation. What the, what the disciples left with. 
It may not be real change yet. They may not see a whole lot of difference in their life, but their anticipation changed. And on many days, if you're like me, you wouldn't say, hey, I've got to see ultimate change, but I'm desperate to be able to have a little bit of anticipation. So maybe that's the gift that God graces you with or me with today. There's a lot of things in this miracle. I love this miracle. It's one of my favorites. Because right at the beginning, we see exactly that Jesus says, I'm willing to show you what I'm doing. I'm willing to show you deeply, but you got to look. Because it's not obvious to everybody. And there's always going to be plenty of people around that will totally miss it. And Jesus is so confident in what the gospel is and who the truth of he, who the truth of really who he is, in fact, is. He's so confident in that and it's so real that he's willing to take that risk. He's willing to have some of us miss it, trusting that some of us will get it. I want us all to get it. When I was, um, when I was between high school and college, um, I worked for a company, and I was, I was working in their warehouse, and we were on a pickup truck that was really loaded down, really loaded down, um, with a lot of weight in the back, and we were taking it to a recycling place over in High Point. And um, we're going down the highway, and the road sign that we were looking for, uh, the trees and everything had kind of grown up around it. And we didn't see, I, I didn't see the sign, I was driving, I didn't see the sign until I was almost right beside it. And when I was right beside it, I had to react. And in my reaction, I, I pulled the truck across a couple of lanes and, in, and onto the off-ramp. The problem was the back of the truck was weighted down so much that steering had no effect. And as the weight tipped back and I went to turn the steering wheel, the truck actually never went this way and only stayed going straight. The end result was a whole lot of repair bills on the owner's truck, unfortunately, and me and a good friend of mine that I worked with being down in this ravine sitting sideways while I looked up at him and up at the sky as we tumbled down. You know, the weight on the back of the truck was a little bit too much. I was going at a, you know, decent speed, probably a little bit quicker than was safe. But the ultimate problem was I just I missed the sign. The weight of the truck was not too much for me to figure out control over it if I had been really looking for and aware of the sign. Problem was, he and I were just having a good time, and I was in a hurry, and we were in the wrong lane as a result of me not seeing the sign, not looking for the sign. See, many of us, it's not that God's not speaking. It's not that even and sometimes he's not shouting. It's just simply, today, God, do I choose to position myself to look and see? Because when we look and see, we'll find. That sign, I went back about a month later because I desperately wanted to make my case at work that that sign just couldn't be seen. And that sign that looked so hidden when I first went by it, it really didn't have that many trees in front of it. 
My mind told me it did. My pride told me it did. But when I went back and looked at it again, I could read the whole street name. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second? Um, God really graces us with so many good things, and out of his word we have so much truth. This morning I hope you've heard in this first sign, first of several signs that we'll walk through together. I hope you've heard the truth of God's word. I hope you've heard the truth of who he is. And I hope you realize that, that it's going to take looking deep. I hope you've heard some things maybe you hadn't heard of out of this miracle before. Maybe you've heard it preached before hundreds and hundreds of times. Maybe there was something today, even if there was just one thing that you hadn't heard before, you're taking that and going, God, there's, there's more for me to see. Because I know God is wanting to show you great things, but do great things in your life. That's my prayer for you right now. After I pray in just a moment, our praise team is going to lead us in a song. And as we sing this song together, this area up front will be open for prayer. In fact, um, already I know that I'm going to be praying with a couple of guys over one specific need um, in someone's family just to really ask God to change what looks like is unchangeable in a health situation. So we're going to devote some time to really believe and trust in the miracle that we've seen this morning. If you feel like God is calling you to come up and just, and just go through those motions of setting something down for Him and and praying and just really devoting it to Him and then walking away in some freedom from it. But I want you to encourage you to do that. If you want to know more about really what does it mean to have a relationship with this Jesus that spoke so clearly, that showed so much, that provided so much evidence, that loves and gave His life for us, I would love to walk you through that today. I want you to know that you have a relationship through Jesus Christ. So please find me. Please come talk to me. Come, come talk to someone. Even if you just walk up during this song, you can just make eye contact with Dale, and he'll make sure that somebody connects with you. God, thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Help us, Lord, to honor you in everything we do, and through these moments, help us to sing with a sincere joy in our hearts. Help us to pray with great expectation. Help us to look deeply into what you're doing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.